For 400 years, there was silence. The last message that God's people had heard from one of God's prophets is found in the book of Malachi. As God used the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, to share God's plan and purposes and his covenants and promises. And after Malachi spoke for 400 years, there was not another sound, nor was there another spokesman. Now, it's not that God was asleep, nor had God abandoned his people, though they deserved judgment. They had turned from God, and because of that, uh, there had been times of, of foreign oppression. There had been the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans were in power. And as the people were there in Jerusalem, under the power of Rome, they were restless. They were looking to God. They were crying out for redemption. They were, they were hoping for the, the redemption of the past, like when God had brought the people out of the land of Egypt, uh, brought them out under that time of slavery as Yahweh delivered them, or what he had done during the days of the Babylonian captivity as he set the nation free again. He had brought them into the land, and now they're in the land, but, but Rome is in power. And they were crying out for redemption. But there was simply silence. As we'll see as we turn in our Bible today in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, while there was silence, it didn't mean that God was asleep or was not aware of what was happening. In fact, he was at work. He was at work behind the scenes to redeem not only the nation of Israel, but you and I today. As we look at the Gospel of Luke, if you're wondering where it is, it's in the New Testament. Go past the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, you'll find Luke. If you get to the Gospel of John, you've gone too far. Now, the word gospel literally means good news. And this is a book of good news, as we'll see. Uh, it tells us what God did to save us. In Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In Luke 2.10, we're told, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people, you and I today. Now, as this story of good news begins, what we see is there there are some words of introduction. In Luke 1, 1 through 4, we're told, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning, were from handed down by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, Luke says that many have set about to write these things, and it's not just the the other three Gospels. Uh, When you look in the Bible and you see four Gospels, it's, it's all different perspectives on the same thing that God has done, and they were written to different audiences. As you begin reading the Gospel of Matthew, you see it starts with a detailed genealogy, and that was for a Jewish audience because the Jews needed to see the tie to the past promises of who the promised one, the Messiah, would be. So Matthew is predominantly a a Jewish audience that was in mind. But then you get to Mark, And Mark was written for the Gentiles, and genealogies didn't mean much to the Gentiles, so he just jumps right in, and it's the gospel of immediately. He moves quickly. And as you look at the gospel of John, it it speaks to the Greek mind and, and the nature of who God is, which is why it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's tying in and and showing the the humanity and the nature and and who God is. And as as we read Luke, this is written to the Romans. 
as well as the rest of us, but it's, it's written in, a, in an orderly fashion where he wants to prove things. He says there are plenty of people who have written. It wasn't just the, the three Gospels that are canon in our Scripture. There are other books that maybe you've heard about, like the, the Gospel of, of uh, uh, Thomas, a spurious book that, that isn't accepted as canonical Scripture. There were other non-Jewish, I mean non-Christian writers, Jewish writers like Josephus, the most famous. There were 38 other historical books written at the time that talked about who is Jesus. You see, Jesus was a real man and, a, and, and was known all throughout that day. Everybody was talking about Jesus, this man who claimed to be the Messiah, this man who had been killed by Rome. And, and people were debating, is he really the Son of God? Is he the Christ, the word that means the anointed one, the Messiah? And so Luke says, the, the Holy Spirit has guided me to set about and write this account so that you can know who he was. You can know the truth about who he is. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that he's the guy writing this book, but we know he is from a couple of things. One is his style of writing. If you read the book of Acts, which God also used Luke to write, you see uh, the same words and style of writing. And as you read through Acts, you see that Paul uh, had a personal physician by the name of Luke, and he went with Paul on missionary journeys. And he's mentioned throughout Acts, and he mentions references to this, as we'll see as we go through Luke. As, as Luke writes, he, he wants us to know he didn't have the privilege of personally witnessing the ministry of Jesus, but he interviewed those who did. He spoke to witnesses and servants. And, and as he does these interviews, we see his background as a doctor. He's a scientist. It's evident in the method he used as he says, I investigated, I interviewed, I researched, and I wrote out what we're reading today. So having compiled this under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he, he addresses the letter to a man named Theophilus. Now, the word theos, the Greek word means God, and phileo or philos means a lover or a friend of God. So his name literally means a lover of God or a friend of God. And because of that, some people say, well, this is just a general heading uh, that he used to address the book to a general audience. But I want you to notice there's a title attached. He calls him the most excellent Theophilus. And this isn't from Wayne's world. Uh, this was a, a reference in that day that was used to speak of a Roman official. As you read through the book of Acts in Acts 23:26 and 24:3 and 26:25, this is a title attached to a Roman official. So he's a real man, a high-ranking Roman who has come to Christ and is now being helped to grow deeper in his faith. So in verse 4, Luke says he wants him to know more about the truth that he's already been taught. And the word for truth is the Greek word uh, catechumen, which is where we get our English word catechism. And it's a word that describes a systematic teaching of the foundations of the Christian faith. And so what Luke is telling us is this is a, a book that is not just for the seeker. It's not just for a person who has not yet come to understand that the claims of Christianity are true. It is written for a person like that. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're here wondering, is Jesus really who he said he was? Is this Christianity really uh, the way to heaven? Is Jesus really the son of God? This is a book for you. But it's also a book for those of us who have been believers for decades, for those who are uh, have been walking with the Lord for many years because it's a foundational systematic study of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So it's a book for all of us, a book of great news. 
Now, as he's introduced his book to us, he then begins with the story before the story. Now, what do I mean the story before the story? Well, what he's doing is he's going to tell us about the one who is to come by the name of John the Baptist, who will be the one who points to the anointed one, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. So he begins by talking about the one to come, John, before the ultimate one to come, Jesus Christ. And this is where we pick up in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abihah. And he had a wife from among the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So what we're told is, Outside the city of Jerusalem in the hill country of Judea, there's a couple who's living there, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And we're told that they're servants of the Lord. Now, they're not only servants in the Lord by way of their profession. It told us they were descendants, direct descendants of Aaron, which means they're part of the priestly line. So their vocational work is not only serving the Lord, but their lives are dedicated to serving the Lord because of, uh, we see they had a great love for God. It's not only what they did, but how they lived. And they had a love for the Lord that showed up in their lives, and they had a love for each other that showed up in the fact that they've been married for many, many years. They've weathered the storms of life. Their marriage has gone through trouble and tribulation. The one that is mentioned here is is the pain of infertility. You see, they had a hole in their heart as they longed for a little one. And they had this, this dream that they hoped would one day be fulfilled. But as they grow older, this, this flame had become just a tiny flicker that was about to go out because it says they're advanced in years. In human terms, it looked hopeless. But as we'll see in verse 13, they continued to pray. They continued to hope and ask God to give this desire. And what they didn't know is that God was about to answer their prayer. Not just with a little one who would be a priest like his father, but he was to be a prophet. Not just a prophet, but arguably the greatest prophet who had ever lived because he would be the one who had the privilege of announcing the coming of the promised one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 8 tells us now it happened that, that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of his priestly office, that he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned that he was living out in the Judean countryside. If you know much about the history of Israel, when God gave the tribes the promised land, as they came into the land, what God did was he divided up the physical geography and gave each tribe an allotment within the land, except for the Aaronic line. The the tribe of Levi was not given uh, a slice of land. Instead, they were given priestly cities within each allotment. God wanted a priestly presence among all his people. So instead of getting a geographic area like Texas, the true promised land other than Israel, uh, (laughs) they, they were given cities within each allotment of land, right? And so what happens is he's living in one of these cities. Now, every priest would go to Jerusalem at least five times a year. There were five required times a year that they would go. And they would go to serve in the temple. Here's a model of the Herod's temple in the day. And what would happen is for the three major feasts of the year, for Passover, for Pentecost, also called Sukkoth or weeks, 
and for uh, tabernacles or booths. All of the Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem. So as the city swelled and all these pilgrims were coming and offering sacrifices, it was all hands on deck. All the priests had to come and serve in the temple. Now, beyond that, there were two other times a year where each section of priests would go to Jerusalem for a period of two weeks each. And this is what uh, you find in 1 Chronicles 24. It says there are 24 divisions that were set up, which included the division of Abihah, that you saw mentioned in verse 5, of which Zacharias is part of. So at the time this is taking place, uh, it's his family's time to go to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. And there were about 20,000 priests who were uh, living at this time and serving in the temple. And so what would happen, as you came into the temple, there were a variety of jobs. Uh, Most were involved in, in preparing and offering the sacrifices, but there were a few special jobs uh, so when these priests came for their, their time of service, there were, there were three jobs in particular that every priest wanted to do. And it, this is an artist's rendition of the inner temple that went beyond the, the altar and the brazen altar and, and this out, outer courtyard of priests. And as you look into this inner part of the temple, you'll notice that, that big veil. That was the Holy of Holies behind it. And you'll notice there are three things up there. One is this golden lampstand. It's not the menorah like you see at Hanukkah. It was a golden lampstand that was in there, and they would come and they would tend to it. And then on the far right is something called the table of showbread. And this is where there were loaves representing the, the, nation, the tribes of Israel that were their special bread that was brought in and rotated. And then in the middle you see this golden altar, and that's the golden altar of incense that we're reading about. It was about three feet high, about 80, 18 inches wide. And two times a day, in conjunction with the morning offering and the evening sacrifice, uh, the priest that was chosen would come in and he would put a special mixture of incense on this altar and it would ascend. Now in that picture, you see a multitude of priests uh, all tending. But at the moment of offering of the incense, only the priest, in this case Zacharias, would be in this inner temple area. And so what happens is Zacharias is chosen, it says by lot, to go in because everybody wanted this job and and it wasn't by chance. God, as we're reading this passage, had a divine appointment and it was on this day that he chose Zacharias to come into the temple. And And if your name was ever drawn, you were taken off the list and you would never again be allowed to do one of these duties. There were thousands of priests that never had the privilege of doing this. And so as Zacharias is there with his division, he's serving, they draw his name, and his heart would have leaped within his chest. This is a guy who's been waiting his whole life for this opportunity. And he says, this is the day. I get to go into the temple. I get to go in as the representative of the entire nation as he would come in with this special mixture of spices in a golden bowl, as he would approach the veil where the Holy of Holy and the presence of God is, that only the high priest would go beyond once a year, as he came in and as he began to sprinkle this special mixture on there and the sweet aroma was being lifted heavenward, it was a visual picture of the prayers of the people that were outside praying. As, as you look at verse 10, it says, and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So Zacharias is in there. 
He's, he's waited his whole life. He understands not only the honor, but the, the, the huge responsibility it is, is he is the guy offering the prayers of the people, the hope of redemption, saying, Lord, would you bring the Messiah? Would you bring redemption to your people? And as the people are praying outside, and Zechariah is inside, verse 11 says, and an, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. Now, I want you to picture that for a moment. I don't know if you're one of those people that pray with your eyes open. You know, you're kind of always looking around at somebody else. We don't know if he had his eyes closed as he's doing. But at some point, he opens his eyes, and there's an angel. Now, it says fear gripped him. He's literally startled. Did, did his hand shake enough to drop the empty bowl of incense? Uh, did the color drain from his face? We're, we're not really told, but we know he is scared. And the reason he's scared is because as he sees this angel, it's not like the little cartoons. This isn't one of those chubby little cherubs strumming a harp, you know, that you see. This was, it's, we're about to see in verse 19, an angel who stands in the presence of God. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? And seeing the four living creatures that are around the throne. And the description of how mighty these things are. These fearsome, majestic creatures that are covered in wings and eyes and all this. I mean, this is a warrior angel. And as Zacharias looks at this angel, he's standing there and he is scared. He's shaking. He's talked to other guys before when his name was chosen. He says, okay, I want to make sure I do this right. I go into, And nobody's ever told him, oh, there's going to be an angel there when you're done. Right? This hasn't happened to anybody. It's been 400 years since anybody's heard from the Lord. So Zacharias goes in and he, he offers and, and the prayer, the, the prayers are ascending outside, the sweet smell, and he opens his eyes and he goes, there's this angel. And, and his name is, we're about to find out, is Gabriel. Gabriel is God's special messenger angel. There are only two angels mentioned by name in the Bible. One is Gabriel, the messenger, and the other is Michael, the archangel, the captain of the Lord's army. So this is a mighty warrior angel. And, and, and he says, I'm not here to hurt you. He says, I'm here to tell you that God has heard your prayers. His prayers, the prayers that he's offering on behalf of the people is one of them. Lord, would you send the Savior? Would you bring redemption? He says, not only is God going to deliver the people, but your wife is going to deliver a baby. Look at what he says in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. The name John means Jehovah is gracious. He says in verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor until, uh, uh, until he will be filled and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is yet in his mother's womb and, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He, he describes so many things here. First, he says he will be a Nazarite. This, this bit about not drinking and, and this special diet is found in, in Numbers chapter 6. 
He says not only will he have a special diet, he's going to have a special filling. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is not yet the day of Pentecost hasn't come. The Holy Spirit at this point in time was coming and going at special times on a king or a prophet for a limited period of time. And so he says he will have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it will be before he's even born. Never been done before like this. Gabriel also reveals the special ministry. He says he will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And, and he points to prophecies that are found in Isaiah chapter 40 and in Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. Remember, that's the last words that were ever spoken. 400 years before, he says, this is the guy. And he he repeats words that were spoken from Malachi 4, 6 when he says he's going to turn the hearts of the people back to God and he's going to turn the fathers to the children. So you you see this, this fulfillment of the prophecies of God coming true. And as all this is being shared, Zechariah stops shaking. And in verse 18, he said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. I don't want you to pass over that. I want you to linger there for a moment. Put yourself in that place. Remember what the picture looked like? You're in the holy of holies narthex. You're right there. The presence of God is beyond the veil. You're in this this majestic room. The the incense, the special spices going up. This alone is mind-blowing where you are. And, And then beyond that, there's an angel. An angel is standing there, this mighty angel that's made you shake in your shoes. And what he's saying to you, uh, you know, is I've already used the word mind-blowing, so that's times two. Because he says there's all these prophecies, these promises, the covenant, not just from 400 years ago, but from hundreds and hundreds of years before that. He says what the prophet Isaiah spoke of, what Elijah spoke of, what all the prophecies have been pointing to is to be fulfilled. And And how's it going to be fulfilled? Through a son that you've not yet been able to have, which you and your wife have been praying for for decades. You're going to have a boy. And he's going to be the prophet who gets to announce the coming of the promised one. And and as all of this is happening, what what should have happened is he, he should have fallen on his face in worship. But instead, Zacharias goes, yeah, that, that part about me having a baby... He says, uh, Gabriel, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm, I'm kind of an old dude. I'm wrinkly. I'm advanced in years. You can tell he's a righteous guy because how does he describe his wife? He says, well, she's kind of a little mature, right? He doesn't say she's an old lady like me. He says, we're old. How is a baby going to be born from us? And you, you can picture Gabriel for a moment. He sighs, he shifts on his sword, kind of looks up at heaven, kind of like, Lord, is this the right guy? And he says, I'm Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of the Lord. He doesn't like flex and say, you know, look at me. He says, Zacharias, get your eyes off yourself and your limitations and look at God. Friends, are, are there any Zacharias's here this morning? Is there anybody who walked in here this morning that is saying, God, look at my circumstances. Look at my limitations. Look at everything I'm facing. Where are you, God? Why haven't you said something? I've been praying for years. I've been asking you to intervene for years, and you've been silent. Is there anybody here like Zacharias? Friends, I can tell you I'm a lot like Zacharias. I, I have to confess to you that as I read this story of Zacharias, it's very personal to me. It's one that, that I've lived. Because as I've shared before, my, my wife and I went through over a decade of infertility. My wife and I tried to have kids for years. And the years turned into a decade, and then they passed that to 13 years. And as we tried to have children, we went to see doctors, I was in seminary, then I was a pastor. We didn't have a lot of money. Any of you who have been through infertility treatments know how expensive it is, how heartbreaking and how dehumanizing it can be. And I went through all this and very publicly in front of the churches that I was pastoring, people every month would go, any news? And we'd go, no, no news, silence. Another failed procedure, another missed opportunity. And then heartbreak was met with heartbreak where one time we actually were pregnant. And then there was a miscarriage. And I can tell you that uh, I prayed some prayers that I'm not very proud of. There was one time I remember distinctly saying to God, God, I'm a pastor. I'm serving you. Uh, A little professional courtesy maybe. Doesn't it count for something? (laughs) Any of you ever done something like that? And so I can understand Zacharias and Elizabeth. I can understand this hole in their heart. I can understand this, this pain. And, and our, my answer was, was more silence, except for the time that the doctors called my wife and I in and said, well, we want to tell you that barring a miracle of God, you'll never have children. And, and during that time, we had tried to foster. The doors closed. We tried to adopt. The, the doors closed to that. And we kept saying, God, what are you doing? Why? Why won't you grant us children? I, I just want to be a good daddy. We just want to... God, you're giving babies to people who don't even want them. What about us? And silence was met with silence. And and then God in his grace, as well as his perfect timing, gave us our first child, Sarah Elizabeth. She's sitting here. She's 17 years old in a few days. And uh, we named her Sarah Elizabeth because... Sarah was Abraham's wife, as you recall, in the Old Testament was barren. And Elizabeth, that we're reading about today, is her middle name. So we named her after two barren women in the Bible. And then God, 14 years ago, blessed us with our daughter, Hannah. And Hannah, as you know from 1 Samuel, is another woman who struggled with infertility and barrenness. And then 12 years ago, uh, he blessed me with my son, Zachary, which is named after Zacharias of our story. So all of my children bear the names of barren men and women in the Bible. Not that we needed a reminder of God's great grace and faithfulness, but that's why we named our kids that. And I know as I share my story, there are people sitting here this morning that are still going through infertility among us. My wife and I have met and counseled and prayed with many of you. And, and I know that there are still some whose 
desires are unfulfilled. That's why whenever we do baby dedications, you hear me pray for those who are still desirous of children. I remember for more than a decade as a pastor thanking God for everybody else's gifts while I still had empty arms that were very heavy. And as we look at the story here, God said, you're going to have a boy. You're going to be blessed. And some of you are still waiting, and I can't promise you that God will give you that desire. I pray he does. I, I know that there are others that say, well, Roger, that ship has sailed because I am indeed a person who has advanced in years. Or maybe I'm still single and I haven't even yet been blessed with a spouse, so how will I have a child? And there are others of you here who say, well, I've, I've, I've had kids, but I have other prayers that have gone unanswered. Prayers for a loved one to be healed. Uh, Thirteen years ago, my mom went home to be with the Lord. She was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I prayed, God, would you heal my mom? Would you, as Jehovah Rapha, the God of healing, bring healing to her? And God's answer was not the one I was asking. His answer was the perfect one where he said, I'm going to give her the ultimate healing as I'm going to bring her home to heaven. And she'll have a perfect body free of disease. And she'll be in my presence for all eternity enjoying eternal life. And there are many times we pray prayers, and our prayers are met with silence. Our prayers are met with the answer is not what we're asking for. Maybe you've heard of a, a woman by the name of Corey Ten Boom. She was a, a person made famous by what her family did during the days of the Nazi Holocaust as they hid Jews from the Nazis, and eventually their family was caught and they were arrested and taken to a concentration camp. And you'll recall that most of the Ten Boom family died in the atrocities of those concentration camps. Corrie Ten Boom survived, and her story is made famous in the, the book and the movie, The Hiding Place. And both she and her sister Betsy, as they were in these concentration camps, would share the good news of the gospel with the Jews, the Gentiles, others who were in these camps. And they saw people come to faith. And after the war, Corrie went around, and she continued to share the story of God's great love and the need to forgive others as we've been forgiven. And she did so, she would carry around a piece of cloth, an embroidery that you can see if you go to the Hiding Place Museum. Uh, there is this cloth that she would carry around, and she would often hold this up, and she would show it to the, the people she was speaking to. And as you look at that, it's not very pretty, is it? It's this, this mass of threads and, and knots, and it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And she would say, when we pray, this is, this is often our response. Because she said, what we're looking at is the wrong side. She said, at this point, she would flip the tapestry over and she would say, this is what you're looking at. You see, on the wrong side of the tapestry, all you see are the, the various threads and knots and things. And she said, this is our side. We're on the wrong side of heaven. And as we pray, we're looking up and things don't often make sense to us. But she said, up in heaven, God sees what he's doing. This is his side. And there is a day coming when we will be in heaven and we will get to see what God was doing in our life, the way God was answering. And, and James 1.12 tells us this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's what we're going to see when we get on the right side, when we're in heaven. And right now, some of you are staring at the wrong side with the knots and the discombobulated threads, and you're wondering, where is God and what is he, what is he doing? And what he's doing is working his plan and purpose. And we can't always see that. 
You know, I know we'd all love to have an angel appear to us and say, here's what God's doing. You know, if Gabriel had shown up at the beginning of my wife and I struggle with infertility and said, listen, in 13 years, you're going to be blessed with some kids. We would have said, oh, okay, we can handle this. But we didn't know. And some of you are going through things right now and you don't know what God is doing. You know, we live in a world that's broken. 9-11's anniversary is this week. We, we, we see storms that are happening here in Texas, in Florida, down in Mexico, and earthquakes. All around the world, there's floods, catastrophes, wars. And, and, and we go, what is God doing? Where is he? And, and we, we would love for an angel to show up and say, this is what I'm doing. And you know, we have something better than an angel because we have this. We have God's full revelation to us. He tells us in his word there's going to be wars and rumors of war and catastrophes and various things. Why? Because these are the beginning birth pangs of the ultimate delivery. Romans says creation itself is crying out for deliverance. Our world is broken and corrupted by sin. And what God says is, I've told you why and what's happening. He says, if you want to know how it ends, just kind of flip over to the back. Read the book of Revelation. You know what it tells us? God wins. And we who are with him win as well. And so we have something better than an angel showing up to tell us what is happening. The people in our passage had been dealing with silence for 400 years, much of it because of their own bad decisions. But as John would remind them both in name and message, remember the name of John, this prophet coming, means Jehovah is gracious. And what he was telling them is God hasn't written you off. He hasn't said, you blew it, I'm done with you. And friends, today, God is not done with you either. Have you read Romans 5.8? God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, when we were enemies of God, when we were in rebellion, when we turned our back and we were running from him, it says he sent his son from heaven to earth to ultimately go to the cross and die to pay the penalty of death for our sins. That's what we're reading about today, the good news of God's redemption. And so God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't written you off. And as we're reading about the story here where the silence was broken and the plan was announced, isn't it ironic that silence is met with silence? The guy who gets the word from God that says the Messiah is coming is about to come out of the temple and he can't say a word because of his unbelief. Verse 21 says, the people were waiting for Zacharias and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. You see, what would happen is after the priest went in and he burned the incense on the altar, he would be in there and then he would come out and remember the multitudes are outside praying. And the priest would come out and he would come into the courtyard and he would stand and he would raise his arms and he would pronounce the ironic blessing in numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face. And, and he's supposed to give this blessing. The people are going to get up and leave. But instead he comes out and he goes. <laughs> people are going, uh, I, sounds like, I mean, what, what's he doing? And he's going, and they're going, I, I, I think he saw something. You think, yeah, I think he saw something. Zacharias, what? Baby angels. But he can't say anything, right? And so the people are going, oh, okay. 
We'll leave now. And, and there's silence. He can't speak. They don't know what's happening. They don't know that the 400 years of silence has ended because it's going to be nine more months before he can reveal the plan because Gabriel said, until this happens, you won't be able to speak. And verses 23 through 24 tell us when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Zacharias comes home, and she says, Hi, honey, how was Jerusalem? And he goes, She goes, What are you doing? He goes, He starts writing down, We're going to have a baby. She goes, Zacharias, are you feeling okay? Baby. And and we know he tells her the story because when we get to verse 60, we're going to see when the baby is born, he can't speak yet. And they say, are are we naming him Zacharias after his daddy? And she says, no, his name is John. They go, oh, no, 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 it's got to be Zacharias. And she says, his name is John. He says, John. And as soon as that happens, he can speak. So he reveals the story to her. He says, honey, we're going to have a baby. And it happens. She gets pregnant. Remember, she's advanced in years. She's waited all these years for the blessing of a child. And suddenly she feels the little kick and she starts to show. And we read, well, she kept herself in seclusion for five months. And you're going, what what is that about? Imagine the the sideshow Elizabeth was in this little town. She's, she's the older barren lady. And in that day, people would say, if you're barren, it's because of sin or other things, and it's God's judgment. And so she's been walking around with this shame on her her whole life. And suddenly she's pregnant, and everybody's walking up. And you, any pregnant lady here has probably had this experience. Strangers put their hand on you and go, how's our baby? And you're going, get, I don't know you, get away. You know, and this is what's happening. She's this, she's this older woman who's pregnant. Everybody's running up and, and pointing and poking. And how are you doing? When Sarah was born, we had over 70 people show up at the hospital because we, we had been in Dallas. I went to Dallas Seminary. We had pastored in Dallas. I was pastoring 30 miles southeast in Kaufman at Country Bible, and, and everybody wanted to celebrate with us. And we had an emergency cesarean in the middle of the night with Sarah, and there were five families already outside waiting. And we had over seven. We had to finally say, no more visitors. We can't. We can't. Uh. Thank you for celebrating with us. And that's Elizabeth. Thank you. Glad you got... Let's just stay home, Zacharias. You know? But the whole time, she has a smile ear to ear. She says, look what the Lord has done. He's taken away my reproach. He's given me the blessing of a baby. And when the baby is born... We're going to see in the weeks ahead the great joy that's there. And friends, as, the bless, as exciting as the birth of any baby is, the story that we're reading today about the birth of not just John, but the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, should, should fill us with overwhelming joy at the news of God's great gift that was sent to save us. The gift that is mentioned in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but shall have the gift of eternal life. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And Luke said, He's written these things that we could know the truth. 
Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And friends, if you're here this morning and you've not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so today. I invite you to consider the claims of who Jesus is and what he did. How God loved you and me so much that he took away our reproach by sending his son to take on flesh and blood so he could go to the cross and he could shed his blood. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And it wasn't the sacrifices offered in the temple that could remove the penalty of our sin. John the Baptist will say in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is through the promised Messiah, Jesus, that your sins and mine have been taken away if we will turn to him in faith. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And if you'd like to do that this morning, I invite you to bow your heads where you are. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But it's your way of saying to God, I believe your son is who he said he was, the promised Messiah, the one who came and died for me. And he proved he was the son of God by rising from the dead three days later, showing he was indeed the one who would conquer sin and death. If you'd like to receive that gift, please bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I'm a sinner. That means I've made mistakes in my life. And as you tell us in your word, the wages of sin is death. God, I can't earn my way to you by being good enough or going to church enough. The only way I can come home to heaven is through the gift of your son, Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that you sent him. And I thank you, Jesus, that you came. And you went to the cross to take my place. Dying to pay that penalty of death. And today, Jesus, I accept your death in my place. I accept your gift of grace and new life. I believe you're who you said you were. The promised one. The one who went to the cross for me. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through you. Christ Jesus, as Romans says. And I accept your free gift today. Thank you for making me a part of your family. I pray this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.